Corinthians for this calendar year. We'll be back with this next year, but um, we're going to be in uh, excuse me, First Corinthians chapter four today. And American humorist and author Mark Twain was attributed with this quote. We're not really sure if he said it or not, but it's still good, good uh, humor here. He said, "When I was a boy of fourteen, my father was so ignorant." I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished how much the old man had learned in seven years. Isn't that the truth? It illustrates how we as young people sometimes think our parents don't know how life works. But after a few years of being out in the world, a few years of experiencing life, some school... uh, Lessons in the school hard knocks. Suddenly mom and dad become much smarter than they used to be. And I think the challenge for parents is to continually bring the truth before our children, knowing that sometimes they're shaking in their their heads. Maybe they're not saying it outwardly, thinking you don't know what you're talking about. And even the great apostle Paul, with his own spiritual children, he had this challenge. This church in Corinth were not so sure about their spiritual father, the one who had brought them the gospel, the one who had preached Christ to them. They weren't sure whether he knew what he was talking about when it came to the Christian life. As a group, they had come to look at the Christian life through the eyes of worldly wisdom, for what Jesus could do for them. And Paul had to call them back to a sober look at the reality of following Jesus. As he put forth puts forth his own life, if you will. His own call as an apostle, as Jesus sent one, specifically sent to them, to show them that the vision that they had, that had borne out as they were trying to live in something that was not yet true of them. Paul was trying to show them that this has not yet happened. So, let me pray for us, and then we'll look into God's word today. Okay? So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this, this Advent season where we remember that you came for us. And indeed, you are a holy God. But you came to make a way that we might be reconciled to you. Came to live this life. Came to die for us and rise from the dead. And you have made yourself accessible. Now, even more so through your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, as we look into your word today, would you give us the grace to see what you have for us? And if there are areas where we're living in in a manner that's not pleasing to you, in a manner that's not biblical, in a manner that's not in obedience to you, would you give us the grace to repent? And would you open the eyes of our hearts so we may see what you have for us in your word? We thank you for this time bringing us together. I pray you'll use the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. May they be acceptable in your sight today. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up at verse 8. So let's read verses 8 through 13 together before we as we get started here. Already! You have all you want. 
Already you become rich. Already you have begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign. So that we might, that, that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless, we work hard with our own hands, when we are cursed, we blessed. We bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have to be, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. The first thing Paul starts out in this part of the letter doing is calling them to understand the present reality. As I talked about, as we started this this sermon series. The subtitle of this is called Grace in the Mess. And the Corinthian church is a mess because of Paul's absence. It was very messy. And much of what they were seeking to do was establish spiritual superiority over one another. And that's when we talk about the factions that were being built up. And this is, and part of what was going on here is what commentators call an over-realized eschatology. That's a big word there, but it's just, you know, eschatology is the study of the end times. And they were assuming realities that will only be fully realized when Christ himself returns. The problem was they were applying these things, and they were applying these things really in a, with a world-bound bent. And so Paul's looking to call them back to the truth, back to the present reality, and he gets a little sarcastic with them, if you, if you, as you noticed here. Already, you have all you want. Already, you have become rich. You've begun to reign. And that without us. If I was to paraphrase this, I, you know, Paul, like, wow. Wow, you're already living in the reality of Christ as all your needs and desires are met, aren't they? You become enriched in every way. You have no wants. You've begun to reign and rule as though Jesus Christ is right here on earth. He's returned making everything right. As he's put everything under in place under his authority. And so you're satisfied. You're enriched. You're ruling and reigning. And you forgot to invite us. Paul puts them back from their wishful thinking, and saying in verse 8, how I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. And to be sure, this is one of the, the paradoxes or the tensions of the Christian life. Because there is a sense of living in the now, but the not yet. You see, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have been given eternal life. If that isn't fully realized until Jesus comes back, or you die. 
Yes, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. But yet, what will be fully, will fully be our transformation? That's going to happen later. In a twinkling of an eye, Paul's going to say a little bit later in chapter 15. Yes, you are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But yet that is not completely, fully realized. And yes, Jesus Christ, all authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. He is sitting at God's right throne. And yet on earth, we do not see everything under his authority yet. So there's a sense of the now, but not yet. Jesus is still on the throne. But something is happening still. You see, the reason these things are not fully realized is because Jesus is still doing his redemptive work. He is still trying to draw men and women to himself to put their faith in him. First Peter, I mean Second Peter chapter 2 verse 3, 9, the apostle Peter says, look, God's not slow in keeping his promise, but he's waiting and so that people will repent because he's not willing that any should perish. He's waiting so that people will put their faith in Jesus. But one day, he will come back and it will all be over and there will be no chance to respond to Jesus. There'll be no chance to respond to his gospel. But until that happens, God is still doing his redemptive work here. And there's a, a price to pay even as a follower of Jesus Christ as he wants to work through us. And so this is where he picks it up in verse 9, talking about the reality of, of the cost of being part of that redemptive work. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the, the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Hey, Corinthians, you want to know what it's like to be Jesus sent one? <laughs> it's like being in the procession of a Roman triumph. And we're the ones condemned to die at the end of the line here. And we're on display, not only to the whole world, but to the whole universe, to angels even. That's what it seems like. You see, it's like master, like servant. Jesus himself says to his disciples in, in John 15, 20, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the, the Philippians, says, For to me, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see, to live for Jesus Christ is to identify with the perceived shame that Jesus had in dying on the cross. His death. And that was Paul's message, what he tells the, the first, the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 23. Hey, my message was Christ and Him crucified. Not earthly wisdom. To identify with what seems foolish, what seems like weakness, what seems like shame or dishonor. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were looking to avoid. 
They didn't want that. They wanted to be Christians and, and be thought of as powerful. Thought of as, as wise. As honored. And Paul knows this. And so he presses into them a little bit more. And he gets a little more sarcastic and a little more ironic. Perhaps Paul did have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Some of you are saying, I have that gift. Verse 10. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. And this ironic comparison blows up into a catalog of the cost of following Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. And when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. See, even in this persecution, the character of Christ coming through in his servants, his apostles. And he continues on saying, We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. All right, who's in? Who wants to do this? Who wants to identify with this? You see, he's saying, as a follower of Jesus, you are going to appear foolish and weak and dishonored. You may experience hunger, thirst, worn out clothes, be brutalized, no place to call home. And when you're cursed, you're called to bless. When you're persecuted, you're called to hang in there. When you're slandered, you're called to give a kind response. And you might be perceived as the scum, as the garbage of this earth. I don't know about you, but that's not how the gospel was presented to me. But this might be the view of our world. It might even be viewed as foolish and self-destructive. But this is what the apostles experienced. What Paul experienced. But again, here's the truth. What Paul said in verse 25 in chapter 1. Hey, this might be how you're perceived. But the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Because human wisdom, you know what? The real motives, those are going to be revealed. And it's going to be judged and destroyed, and it's not going to last. What seemed like real wisdom, what seemed like real treasure, what seemed like really worth investing your life in, is going to turn out to be father. It's going to get burned up. That's what he was trying to talk about in chapter 3. And for us today, let's face it, we want to appear wise, strong. We want to appear honored. But the truth of the matter is that following Jesus is not about gaining this world. It's not about Him making us healthy, wealthy, and wise. And folks, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us and God doesn't take care of us. 
But I'm saying that it's not about gaining the world. Jesus will say, he said it in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 37, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for his soul? Saying, guys, what you're pursuing ultimately is foolishness. And what I'm pursuing, even though it is perceived as foolishness, is actually God's wisdom. It's actually God's strength. And after making this stark comparison between what they were pursuing and what he and the rest of the other apostles were pursuing, he reveals his reason for being so sarcastic. That is a call to imitate the life of their spiritual father. Pick it up at verse 14. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. And he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everyone in every church. Paul saying, look, Corinthians, I am your spiritual father. As I brought you the gospel, Jesus sent me. You can read about it from a historical standpoint in Acts chapter 18. That's what he's saying in verse 15. And there's a difference between being a father and a guardian. He makes this comparison in verse 15. You see, a guardian was typically someone who was a slave or a servant who was assigned as a nanny or what have you to be along the child, the child's side. But that didn't mean that they necessarily loved the child. That was just their duty. That was their job. Their life, their life might have even depended upon it. And let's face it. There's a difference between people who want to come alongside you and tell you what to do as opposed to people who will actually give their life for you. Right? Paul saying, I'm your father. I am willing to give my life for you. And my purpose, again, is not to shame you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about yourself. But I am here to warn you. It's like that parent saying, son, daughter, the pathway you're going down is destructive. I'm not trying to demean you. I'm just trying to show you you're heading down a pathway that you're not going to want to find yourself at the end. of. I'm trying to turn you around, give you a different direction. And here's my direction. Verse 16. I want you to imitate me. I want you to be like me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty heady statement. Because there's some things I want my kids to be like me in, and there are other things that go, oh, not so much. Right? I want you to be like me. 
Because Paul was devoted to Jesus in every way. That didn't mean he didn't have feet of clay, but that was his passion. And later on in the same letter, chapter 11, verse 1, he's going to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's the way I want you to live. In fact, I want you to do it so much that I'm going to send you an example. Verse 17. Timothy. Timothy, my beloved son, just like you're my beloved. Timothy's been with me a lot longer. We meet him in Acts, Paul's second missionary journey, in Acts chapter 16 in a town called Derby. But he was, he was there with Paul along the way, every step of the way, even into Corinth. And he says of him, number one, that he's his, he is faithful in the Lord. Look, you don't have to worry about Timothy's motives. He is faithful in the Lord. You know that his motives come from a pure heart. It's all about his devotion to Jesus. Second of all, number two, he will remind you of the way, my way of life. Hey, if you want to know what my letter is supposed to look like, lived out, look at Timothy. He's going to show you the way. He's, you know, you've heard the, the, the saying, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. That's what you're going to see with Timothy. Like father, like son. And number three, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. It agrees with everything I teach everywhere in every church. So there's going to be integrity. What you're going to see in Timothy, what you're going to see in me, He's going to do what I say, and I'm going to do what I say. There's not going to be a difference between the two. And number two, there's going to be a consistency. I'm teaching the same thing in all the churches. Ephesus isn't getting something different. The Galatians aren't getting something different. No, this is how I teach in every church. It's going to be consistent. Here's a take home for us, especially those of us who are fathers or mothers is my life is my faith worth imitating do my children see integrity in me and what I say is what I do do they see consistency in me that I'm the same in every situation than just being here in the church you see our children will imitate us whether we like it or not and we have that kind of influence on fellow believers. Do they see in me an integrity and a consistency? That's the challenge to us. Is my life worth imitating? It's what Paul desired for his spiritual children in Corinth, that they would imitate him. But Paul also knew, he also knew that not everyone was on board at Corinth. They knew that some of them were going... I question your authority. I question your leadership. Your model of the Christian life. I knew, he knew someone were saying, I don't think you know what you're talking about, Paul. But he was ready to deal with this. He was ready to even discipline this, this adolescent rebellion. So third, we see a call to consider the coming of their spiritual father. Verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon. 
if the Lord is willing. And when, and when I will, when, and then I will find out not only who has, who, how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? You know, of all the letters that we have of Paul's, all the churches, relationships, it seems that the Corinthian church was the most antagonistic toward Paul. Yes, the Galatians were dealing with false teachers who were trying to impose the law again. Yes, the Colossians were dealing with heretics who were trying to impose a, a heresy called Gnosticism. But the Corinthians just seemed to have a genuine, some of them have a genuine contempt for Paul and his person. It's like a sassy, rebellious teenager thinking that they're going to call Dad's bluff. But Daddy don't play. And he's coming back. And he knows who he is. He knows who sent him. And he fully intends to carry out what he said he would do. And so in verse 18 says, Hey, look, some of you say, I'm not coming back. I am. I am. In verse, seven, in verse 19 says, I'm coming back. And I'm going to find out who's being arrogant against me. I'm going to do a thorough investigation, kids. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to find out what kind of spiritual power you think you have. Because I know the power that I have. And, a verse, and then he makes this, this clause say, if the Lord is willing. Now some of us say, that's kind of weaseling out there, Paul. But no, he is demonstrating the proper humility before the Lord that the Corinthians themselves are not willing to display as far as you know, viewing Christ in, through human wisdom. You see, again, they were looking to Jesus to make them wise, strong, and honored. They were trying to make Jesus their servant. But the truth of the matter is, our life, our time on the earth, it's in the Lord's hands. We have nothing to do about it. We have nothing to say about it. He is the Lord. And Paul says, look, my life and my times are in the Lord's hands. So I'm planning to come back if the Lord wills. Because Paul did have plans. He did have desires. We read about that he had plans to go to Spain. As far as we know, he was never able to fulfill those desires. But he was letting Jesus be Lord rather than saying, Jesus, fulfill my desires. Make my plan happen. And again in verse 20 he says, look, I'm not playing games. You can talk all you want. But your worldly view is powerless and empty. And I know who sent me. I know the authority he has given me. And in the church that was quite fascinated with sign gifts, says, Paul says, I'm quite willing to demonstrate the power that God has given me. I'm going to come and demonstrate that. If you were with us in our series through Acts, you read in chapter 13 of Acts about how Paul dealt with a a man named Elimaeus or Bar-Jesus who was opposing him. And he, he rebuked him in the Lord and blindness came upon him. Paul knew the spiritual power that God had given him. And so in verse 21 he says, look, the choice is yours. The choice is yours. I can either come to you with a rod of discipline 
Or I can come to you with a gentle heart, with love and spirit. This is not an easy passage to preach, folks. This doesn't seem like what the Apostle Grace would say, right? But it is. It was not Minnesota nice. But he realized that God disciplines those whom he loves. And Paul, as their spiritual father, he can't allow these destructive attitudes and actions to stand or to spread in that church. He's going to bring discipline for their sake. And remember, again, that God disciplines those whom he loves. Sometimes it's a hard thing to deal with. But when you're experiencing God's discipline, he's doing it out of love, not out of being punitive. And so, take care. We should take care. If we find ourselves resisting spiritual leadership that God has placed over us, if they're giving us godly, biblical counsel, we need to be listening. We need to be listening because God has given them authority. And you might just find yourself resisting God. At the end, experiencing His discipline. If we will not listen. But in the big picture of this passage, what Paul was trying to do, he's trying to say, look, following Jesus, the Christian life is not about advancing our own agenda. God is not our genie. Jesus is not our wish maker. It's about following him, identifying with him. And advancing his agenda. And even identifying with him, if in the world's eyes it seems foolish, if it seems weak, and if even if it seems dishonorable. Because ultimately, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is stronger than the power of men. At the end of the day, at the end of time, we'll find out that our spiritual father, our true heavenly father, knows what he's talking about. He tells us these things. And now we are going to head into a time where we're going to celebrate. We're going to identify we're going to give thanks for something that seemed foolish in the eyes of the world. That is Jesus living this life, allowing himself to be put to death, and becoming that atoning sacrifice for us. To purchase our salvation. The author of Hebrews will say this at the end of chapter 13. He says in verse 12, And so Jesus also suffered outside the gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. That's what we're identifying with. What Jesus has done 
and the city that he will bring only one day. Living in the now, but not yet. Here at the Breen Community Church, we practice what we call open communion. That means if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table.